Most bankers aren't ready to help you until after their third cup of coffee. But with Central National Bank's after-hours service, you don't have to wait for the bank lobby to open to get help. You can contact us from 6 to 8.30 in the morning or from 5 to 10 in the evening, and we'll connect you to a real, live, local person who can answer questions and fix problems seven days a week. Bank different. Bank central. Central National Bank. Member FDIC. Coming up on the payoff, Vance Johnson was a superstar in the NFL with the Denver Broncos. He went to three Super Bowls and was one of John Elway's favorite targets. I, I say on this podcast, he looked like he was plucked off the cover of a new edition album, but underneath all that was darkness. It was pitch black, and a lot of that has to do with Vance's upbringing, an abusive father uh, in, in a tough household, and what he tried to do and what he was told he could do was outrun it all. And with speed, that led to him running a 4-2-40 at the NFL Combine, which led to him getting drafted 31st in the NFL Draft in 1985. He did seem to outrun it. Uh, on the field, like I mentioned, he was exceptional. Off the field, he was out of control. He talks about all of that, how alcohol and drugs led him into a coma for 28 days before he came out of it. This guy was married eight times, uh, and he, he, he was broken. And what he does now is he uses that brokenness to help put others back together. He uh, carries the message. Uh, he walks with God, and uh, we were stoked to be able to walk with him today. All right, but first... Let's head on out to California. Fly out there. Kevin Souza. Here is in as Elway rose to the right. Leaping catch by Vance Johnson for a touchdown. Vance. Hey, Pete. Are you in Tucson right now? Yeah, I'm in Tucson. America's Rehab Campuses is where you are right now, and you're the ambassador to the program, which means you're kind of the face of things out there. Yes, sir, exactly. In fact, I'm in my office right now, and I, you know, they, they surprised me when I walked in the first time. I noticed it was orange and blue, and they said, yeah, because you were a former Broncos. We wanted to paint your office orange and blue. <laughs> Ten years, you're one of the, and you're one of the few people. I know you had, from 94 to 95, I guess you had a quick stint with the Chargers. Is that right? Interesting you said that, because I didn't want to be with the Broncos anymore because they were bringing on one of the Chargers wide receivers, so I decided to sign with the Chargers. And then you ended up back in Denver, though. Yeah, and that's because I got drunk and was partying in San Diego, and the, the owner of the team called me on a Sunday, and instead of taking me to church, he fired me. Wow. Yep, so I went back to Denver. So you go back to Denver, and that's why you know, you're one of the only people – one of the very few guys who played with one team the whole time, I guess. Could you probably never? Did you ever suit up for a game with the Chargers? Oh no, well only uh, during the preseason, but never, never a game. Only with Broncos. So you grow up in Trenton. Uh, what was the, uh, the the home like life? What was what was the family life like growing up for Vance Johnson? Well, interesting. I wasn't really. Uh, I didn't grow up in Trenton. I was born in Trenton, so I lived there probably four or five years of my early early life. And it was kind of a, I don't even remember except for the trauma that I was going in in my mind. So eventually we ended up having to move to Arizona because my mom couldn't live in New Jersey anymore with my father who was a part of gangs out there when he was growing up and the abuse that he was putting her through and decided to come back out to Arizona. So it's kind of hard to remember New Jersey except for the family members that I was always around. 
Do you remember any of the abuse and, and how that may have like shaped you? Actually, I remember all the abuse. And when you're just a little child, you're only traumatized, even though you may not remember the things that you saw, but you do remember the things that you had to feel. And then when we moved out to Arizona when I was around four or five years old, that's when I started to just really recognize what was happening in the home. And that's when I saw my father, who was not only an alcoholic and using different types of drugs back then, but he started to beat on my mother and he would be punching her in the face. And it was so unfortunate to see a mom while you're sitting in the back seat at five years old, looking at blood go all over the windshield on the, on the passenger side. And then her having to wear glasses to work because she had black eyes. And that was just the beginning of the abuse that I had to grow up in and around. And I saw it every single day as a child, even in my own home, especially. And so for you, that was almost became the norm, right? Like normal is kind of just what you get used to. So as a kid, that's something where I, I, I'm guessing that became like status quo. It was so normal that I figured that every kid had to go through what I was going through. And so then when you go to your friend's house, you would pretend like everything was okay and you wouldn't talk to them about what was happening in your house because you assumed it was probably happening in their house too. But my mom would just be so abused as a child that it got to the point where I literally would run out of the house to just get away from the home because I hated being in my house. And whenever we would have birthday parties and even my own birthday party, I don't know if I've ever shared this very much except for when I share my testimony, but I literally would not even be a part of my own birthday parties that we had at my house. I would run away from home and I promised myself I would never celebrate a birthday ever. You was just that trauma. Like you felt like the other shoe was probably going to drop, right? Yes. In fact, the other shoe did drop. You know, one time I actually ran away from home and ended up downtown Tucson, Arizona, which was about close to 11 miles away from my home. And I was just a child. Well, actually I was around nine or 10 years old and my mother and father were looking for me. And eventually, and I don't know how they found me, but my dad saw me downtown Tucson, Arizona, and he pulled up and looked over at me and said, son, are you hungry? And I looked at him and said, yeah, I'm starving, dad. And my dad said to me, well, you know where you live at? And he rolled the window back up and they drove back home. And so I had to walk back home. Wow. That's what I grew up around. That was just a part of it. And my mom was getting beat on just all the time. And she'd be getting screamed at. One time when I was uh, in my early teens, me and my mom were looking for my father. He was at a nightclub. And we walked in, well, she walked inside. I was kind of standing outside and the door was open. And my mother, my dad was over there touching on this lady's boobs and another woman's crotch. And my mom started to punch on those women. And my father ended up grabbing my mother by the hair and dragging her out of the nightclub. So this is the trauma that I grew up in and around, not knowing how to be a husband and not even realizing eventually I wasn't going to know how to be a father either. It gets even deeper because when I would, during the day when mom and dad would go to work, me and my sister would be home alone. I would sneak into mom and dad's bedroom because kids are nosy. And I would look in the closet, see what type of shirts my dad would wear. And I saw this magazine. You're too young. You probably never heard of it. It's called Hustler. Oh, I've heard of it. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So I opened this magazine up, man, and I saw these beautiful, happy women. And even though they were butt naked, to me, that was joy. And so I thought to myself, I'm going to marry one of them when I grow up. And so I had a sex addiction even as a child. I would go in there and look at these magazines to look at not only the women's bodies, but look at their smiles on their face. And then I started to see these different videos that my father had hiding under the bed. And I would watch the video and they're pornography. And so I was watching people have sex. So I literally, even though I was a virgin, I had a sex problem as a child as well.
it, it just it distorts the way that we look at women for our whole lives. I mean, you get that image of okay, this is, and you watch those movies. For me, I know it made me think, okay, it's okay to treat women like this, or this is what a a sexual relationship looks like, and uh, it really screwed me up. Yeah, it had nothing to do with marriage; it just had to do with feelings, didn't it? Yeah, everything was about feel- everything was about feelings, right? I heard <laughs> yeah. you say once, and we'll get into the relationships, but you said. You know, you've been married eight times, and and you said um, you would get into an argument with somebody, and and you would just break up with you get divorced because you you, just you, you hated the way you, you hated the way you felt, dude. I could relate to that, Vance. So I was like, wow, it was like a, it hit me with a lightning bolt because even in sobriety, I still struggle. I feel uncomfortable, and I just want to bolt because I'm like, I, this doesn't feel right. I you know I got to get out of this. Well, you know, as we get forward into this, this conversation, you'll see I don't walk by feelings anymore. I walk by faith. But it was all about my feelings. And growing up as a kid, it was all about my feelings, too. And that's the reason why I was only wanted to feel good. And so watching women have sex with men and watching all these different photos of ladies with no clothes on, that's where I wanted to go one day. And then the other thing I watched was television and watched all these famous sports athletes because I wanted to grow up to be like them because they looked happy when they were on the field and everybody was clapping for them in the tens and thousands. Well, and you had a million dollar smile. And so you always looked happy. You're, you know, you're a good looking man. Now, back in the day, you look like you were plucked off the cover of a new edition album. And (laughs) I would imagine you would have been a real, uh, a real hit with the ladies growing up in Tucson. When did you realize you were faster than everybody else? I realized I was faster than everyone else. And this is the credit I am going to give my father. My dad, when I was a child, would not let me go to bed until I worked out. Would not let me get up in the morning until I did my chores and worked out. So he made me participate in sports, and I became really good at it because I was obedient to listening to him tell me what to do and also listen to my different coaches tell me what to do. And then I started to see how I started to run faster than the kids that I was racing against. And I started to realize it's not what you do at practice. It's what you do when no one's watching. And so I did all different types of sports, from soccer to baseball to football to uh, just track and field, everything. Did your dad look at you as like almost like he, he thought you were going to be a pro athlete? Did he see something in you early on that he kind of latched on to? That's a really good question, and I'm probably going to have to get ready to come up on my 59th birthday asking that question, what made you make me participate in sports? Oh, you know what? Now I remember. My dad was a big fan. Do you remember O.J. Simpson? Oh, yeah. Well, when my dad found out that was a USC, I think he went to, yes. that uh-huh. they were playing against the Arizona Wildcats. My father, when I was just a teenager, in fact, I may have been uh, maybe 11 years old, took me to a Arizona Wildcat football game where O.J. Simpson was playing against the Wildcats. And when I watched that young man play football, I was like, oh, my goodness, I want to grow up to be like him one day because he was amazing. And then when they were leaving and going into the locker room, all the kids would be able to stand by the locker room and watch the college football players walk in. And I stood there and looked up at him, and he looked down at me, and I thought in my head, I'm going to grow up to be like you. And wait until I get to the rest of that story, and you'll see one day I ended up on the very same front page in the Denver Bronco. I'm sorry, not Denver Bronco, but the Denver newspaper article, but I'll get to that. All right, well, you get to, you get to Arizona. You get a scholarship to go there. Uh, yeah. And when are you, are you drinking at all in high school? When did you start to drink? I promised myself I would never drink alcohol. I promised myself I would never do drugs. I promised myself I would never even beat on a woman growing up as a young child, and especially when I was in high school. And do you know, all the way to the age of 21, 
and it's going to go further than that. I had never had a drink. I had never smoked no weed. I had never done anything wrong except for I ended up having sex and losing my virginity in my freshman year in college. I was a virgin all the way until I was a freshman in college. And the girlfriend that was graduating from high school, I ended up getting her pregnant. And unfortunately, when she got pregnant, her dad said, you need to quit football, young man, and quit track, marry my daughter so you can raise this child. And they don't use these terms back in the 80s. But I said, bye, Felicia. I got gold. <laughs> so I was so upset with her. I cheated on her and got another woman pregnant. So Vance Johnson's first time out having sex, got two women pregnant. And I ended up abandoning both those kids. By the way, you, you touched on something. You, you almost qualified for the 84 Olympics. Like You were a, a, an outstanding track athlete. Well, watch. My freshman year in college, and you guys can Google this if you want to, my freshman year in college, I made it to the NCAA championship, and we were up in Provo, Utah. And who was the number one long jumper back then? Carl Lewis. Carl Lewis. Him? Yeah, oh, yeah. Okay. So the night before the finals, here I am, the – 14th place person, so I didn't qualify for the finals, but they came to my room and said, Mr. Johnson, the 13th place guy can't jump tomorrow, so would you like to jump? And I said, I'd love to. And so I called my mother and told her, Mom, I'm going to jump against Carl Lewis tomorrow in the finals here at the NCAA championship. And I asked her to pray for me because I had a headache. And she said, Vance, get off the phone and ask God to take away your headache and tell me you'll jump for me tomorrow. And how'd you <laughs> so do? Watch this. The very next day, I jumped all day long. And I forgot that I had made a promise to God. So your listeners, anybody ever made a promise to God, they forgot. Yeah. So all of a sudden, my last jump of the day, and it's three or four hours later, this promise came to my head. So I backed up about 12 inches because I was going to try harder. When I got down to the board, I'm 12 inches behind the board when I jump. But I jump anyway, and I don't come down. I'm up in the air looking at people. They're looking up at me. And when I landed, and I went to people to Google this, Vance Johnson, as a freshman in college, just won the NCAA championship. I did see that, that you won, you won a title, and that's how. Wow. Yeah, yeah that's how I ended up winning. So that, was, that was the behind-the-scenes story. What's your ego like at this point in time? I mean, because, like I said, you're, you're a good-looking dude. You're, you're an incredible football player. You just won an NCAA championship. What's happening with your, with your, with your ego? Wow, you just made me think of a rhyme. My ego wouldn't let me go <laughs> because I had huge ego back in the day. And to me, I was so self-righteous that it was all about me because to me, I thought an identity was something that was achieved rather than received. And it's like climbing to the top of a ladder. When you get to the top as a pro athlete, the only place to go is where? Down. down. Yeah. And we climb back down the ladder, we jump off head first. And we'll get into that part of the story too. How did you become such an exceptional wide receiver? I think you were, you were running back. You played a couple different positions. But how did you become – so exceptional. Was it natural talent, Vance, or was it hard work? That's a really good at Arizona. Yeah. That's a really good story too. And even though you have natural talent, it ain't going to work out unless you work hard. And that's the reason why I have to give my father some credit, even though I hated him growing up as a kid, which I even tried to kill him one day when I was young. And I'm very transparent, but he made me work out all the time. And when you have talent, you need to work harder so your talent can get better. And that's the reason why I got so good at running track and playing football because I did behind the scenes what my teammates weren't doing. And then I would show up on the field and end up playing better than them. And all through my college years in track and field and football, I would run 99-yard touchdowns. I was winning track meets, you know, like I said, the NCAA championship. And even before I even made it to college real quick, I need to share this. When Even when I was in high school, do you know I won the gold medal at the Pan American Games for the United States of America? <laughs> wow. 
yes, people, you guys can Google this. I won the, the Pan American Games gold medal for the United States of America when I was just a kid. So all this is happening for you, and you're you're not drinking or using drugs at all. Uh, no, up until you're 21. Yeah, and you're you're you're. By the way, for people who don't know, how tall are you, Vance? I'm one of the shortest wide receivers <laughs> in the history of the NFL. How five tall? Ten. Five ten, right? And that's the reason why being a running back all the way from junior high school to high school to college, by the time I made it to go to the scouting combine. They said, Mr. Johnson, you're too small to play running back in the NFL. You might want to try out for wide receiver. And I didn't even know how to run a route other than when I was told what to do on the field. So do you guys remember – do you remember a guy named by the name of uh, Randall Cunningham? Oh, yeah. He was drafted behind you, right? He played at UNLV. Yes. yes. In yeah. fact, the uh, interesting thing about Randall Cunningham. So Randall Cunningham, him and I were both you know, seniors in college and at the, at the East-West Shrine game. And he told me, hey, man, listen to this. I want you to go follow Jerry Rice and just run the same exact route that he runs since you don't know how to run routes. I'll throw you the pass, and you catch the ball because then the draft people that do the draft, they're going to compare you to Jerry Rice. And so I just listened to Randall and follow Jerry Rice around and do the same exact thing. And so then the people who do the draft were comparing me to Jerry Rice. And then when it was time to run the 40 meters, uh, Randall Cunningham said, Vance, I want you to get up next to Jerry Rice and blow his butt away. And I was like, no way, man, because that's Jerry Rice. He might beat me. He said, no, but if you beat him, they're going to draft you higher. Because I was predict- predicted to be drafted lower than the ninth round in that draft wow. that year. I blew Jerry Rice away in the 40 meters, and I actually ran 418 and 419. Now, back then it was handheld. And that, I ran 418, 419 at the scouting combine. And that's the reason why I was drafted second pick, second round by the Denver Broncos. Which nowadays would be the first round. You're the 31st pick overall. Um, yep. And, uh, yeah, you ought to be the first round. You get you get to the NFL. What was the transition like for a young guy in Tucson, Arizona, uh, into the NFL and, and playing for the Denver Broncos? Uh, what was the transition like off the field and on it? When I got drafted and I got on the airplane to fly out to Denver, I was really dealing with a lot of emotions because I didn't really have an identity when I was landing except for being famous now. And I looked at the newspaper article. And it was on the front page of the Denver, uh, Denver Post. It said, Broncos add bands. Here I am now, Denver Bronco. And so I need to get into this part of my story. The fourth and final preseason game during the playoff, not playoffs rather, but the uh, preseason game right before the final cut, we're playing against the San Francisco 49ers. And we're out in San Francisco, and all I have to do is catch a punt. And so I'm standing on the 10-yard line, and this is the last preseason game. And the ball's coming down, and I'm thinking, maybe I should just close my eyes because I'll be on the front page, ESPN will be recording this and everything. And I said, no, never mind. I'm just going to catch this ball. I ended up fumbling the ball, rolling in, in the end zone, and San Francisco scored a touchdown to win. So my teammates told me, Vance, you're going to get cut. Your career is over with. You can't drop a punt on the fourth and final preseason game and think you're going to make the team. So when we got back to Denver the very next morning, on the way to the final cut, my teammates stopped by a liquor store, and, guys, that's when I had my first drink. And I was like, whoa, I ain't never felt so good in my life. And oh. I didn't get cut. <laughs> and all those stresses, right, the personal, I'm guessing, because I can just speak from my own experience. I tell people the first time I drank it was like my first spiritual experience, right? Like, I mean, I thought it was. Um, and uh, all that stress, I'm guessing, went away, that personal stress and also the job stress. Yeah, all the stress went away, and I didn't get cut. And so then what I did was I leaned on alcohol to make myself feel better. Then I met a young lady. We went downtown Denver, Colorado, and she said, you ever smoked weed before? I said, never. 
She said, why don't you go ahead and just finish drinking that soda pop in that can? And I said, what does that have to do with weed? So I drink the soda pop. She puts holes in the top of it, <laughs> lights up the marijuana. And so I start sucking out the same hole I was drinking out of, and I start getting high. <laughs> what was it like for you to advance? <laughs> now you got me saying the word advance. So you're advancing so quickly with, with alcohol and drugs, right? I mean, you, you, you know, you're 21, you have your first drink, then you're smoking weed. Uh, and now you're still performing at your job very well, by the way. I'm going to have to borrow that one, man, because I advanced in my addiction. Wow. <laughs> advance, advance in his addiction. How quickly so, did you advance? I was I was an alcoholic right away. My first drink turned me into an alcoholic because, like you said, about the feelings. And so alcohol made me feel better. And then smoking weed made me feel, feel even better. And then when I started having injuries, I was – I start taking these different types of drugs and pills to take away the pain. So I'm addicted to everything during the first part of my career. But to me, it was about that. So, you know, I would show up on the game at the game high. I would be high all Saturday night. And so Sunday, I knew by the time I got to the game and by halftime, I would run it off and then I'd be able to catch those winning touchdowns by the end of the game. So I was always high every single game I went to. What, what were you high on? Were you smoking weed? Were you doing coke? Well, I didn't do coke, but I was smoking weed. I was taking these different types of pills, Xanax and different other pills for injuries, but I was addicted to all of it. And so then I'd ask people for different types of drugs that they wouldn't tell me what they were. So I can't sit here and lie and say I knew exactly what they were, but I know they were drugs that were illegal as well. And you said your teammates would be like, Vance, man, like you're, you're, you're messed up. Actually, my teammates, I would hide from them during the first, during the first part of the game so they really couldn't tell. And eventually it got to the point where some of them would be using with me, and I won't mention any names. Well, I'm guessing one of them was not John Elway, and he's your, he's your quarterback. Uh, or maybe he was. I don't know. <laughs> you don't have to say. What was it like catching some of his passes? What was it like playing with a guy like that? First, first let me say this. Was I silent when you made that comment? Uh, yeah, you were. There is a reason why, so I'm going to leave it there. Yeah. What I, was it like catching with John Elway? John Elway was the – best quarterback that I've ever played with in my life. And I don't know if your listeners ever heard this before, but what happens inside the huddle is completely different from what you're seeing on television. During the first part of the game, this is how John Elway would call the, the play. 247, XY, ZN on one, ready, break. In the second half, this is how John Elway called the play. 247, XY, ZN on one, Dan, you better catch this ball, otherwise you're going to get cut. Ready? Great. <laughs> he was that type of a leader, huh? Yes, and you know what? And I won't mention the two, the two receivers, but two receivers that John told them, you better catch that ball. Ready? Break. They dropped the pass, and guess what happened the very next year? They both ended up getting cut. Yeah, well, you caught the ball more often than not. That's why you lasted 10 years. That's right. I caught the ball because John told me, you better catch this ball. And I, so I always just listened to my quarterback. Now, we would hang out field. You guys would hang out off the field too? Yeah, we would hang off the field. I won't tell you guys where we went, but the places we went, I want to encourage you not to go to. I'll leave it there. I've heard a guy say once, born on third base, thought I hit a triple. I mean, I'm thinking about your accolades, right? I mean, you win an NCAA championship. You get drafted. Basically, we're going to call it the first round because it's 2022 now. You play in three Super Bowls, but early in your career, in your second year, you're going to the Super Bowl. And, and you're drinking and doing drugs, and I'm sure the women – are all over you. Are you just thinking, hey, this is how it's it's going to be for Vance Johnson? Yeah, in fact, what I was thinking is this is the only way Vance Johnson is going to be happy. And so your listeners need to know that I was not only an alcoholic and a drug addict during the first part of my career, but I was a whore. 
and I was just, I got, ended up getting married. I had found out that my two kids that I had in Arizona that I abandoned were being sexually molested by men who were dating their moms here in Tucson. And to me, I was about me. And so I ended up marrying another girl because she was going to have an abortion and I wanted to do the right thing and not be like my father. And so I started using drugs and more alcohol so I could just cope with life. And I married her. But then I started cheating on her. I would go to nightclubs. I would go out to Las Vegas, guys, to gamble. And do you know, I ended up losing millions of dollars in Vegas. One time, Vegas had to hold me hostage at a casino until the Broncos paid them off. That's how transparent I am. Wow. So all this is going on behind the scenes. And uh, and, and what's like Dan Reeves saying? Anybody from the, you know, he was your head coach. Any, or Pat Bowen, he was the uh, the owner. Anybody pull you aside and say, hey, Vance, we got to get this together? Because I know you had a, at least one arrest. I don't know how many. Several arrests, actually. But I will say this. Dan Reeves was a great coach. In fact, Dan Reeves would sometimes tell my wide receiver coach, Mike Shanahan, remember that? Oh, yeah. Mike Shanahan, yeah. He was the wide receiver coach before he became a head coach. He would tell me, Dan Reeves wants you to meet him in his office at 5.30 a.m. tomorrow morning, Dan. And so I would beat Dan, and Dan would really get in my butt about things. And so sometimes I would listen to him, but the one thing I did do was he always told me on the field, you stand next to me because I'm going to tell you when you need to get in there. And so you can look at different photos, and I can send them over to you. I was always standing next to Dan Reeves. So he was like a dad to me when I was in the NFL. And he kept kicking my butt so I could try to do things better. So I started having to lie to him, too, just to cope with life and make touchdowns. And that's when everything became clear that, you know what, Vance don't have a problem. But all they saw was the edited version of Vance on the field because off the field I struggled. I mean, dude, as a kid, I'm telling you, you were one of the coolest players in the NFL. You were 5'10", you had the high top fade. Um, you know, you were one of the three amigos. It was you, Ricky Natil, and Mark Jackson. And uh, you were a superstar. No, well, watch this. Does anybody know how the Three Amigos got started? No, t- tell me. Tell me. Well, that's how it got started. So me and Mark were best friends. I found out they were drafting this guy named Ricky Natil in the first round. I was pissed. And so I told Mark, don't you be friends with Ricky Natil. Because, see, I was so self-righteous, I wanted to be better. And since Mark was drafted in late rounds, I decided to make him my friend. Well, when Ricky lands, I ran the 40 meters and told the press to make that so-and-so, I don't cuss anymore, make that so-and-so see if he can run faster than Vance Johnson. So here we are, me and Mark at training camp, and Ricky's there too, and Mark and I are roommates, and Mark and I now are arguing because him and Ricky became friends, and I was really pissed off at him. <laughs> and I came in and yelling and cussing at him, and I went into his bedroom one day after I watched this movie, The Three Amigos, and I said, Mark, I got a good idea, man. We need to be friends again, so why don't me, you, and Ricky call each other The Three Amigos? And he looked at me and said, man, what are you talking about? And I am going to say one bad word, guys. He said, they might think three white guys can be three amigos, but not three niggas. And I was like, yes, they will. I'm going to tell them that John Elway said it. (laughs) That's brilliant. The all-new Chevy Colorado is made for more. Stacked with the latest in-vehicle technologies like a class-leading 11-inch diagonal center touchscreen and an extra-large wireless charging pad. Plus, it features wireless Apple CarPlay and Android Auto compatibility to make staying connected easy wherever your adventure takes you. Chevy Colorado, made for more. Learn more at Chevrolet.com slash truck slash Colorado. Claims based on latest competitive data. As if the McCrispy couldn't get any better, Bacon and Ranch just entered the chat. The Bacon Ranch McCrispy, available at participating McDonald's for a limited time. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. 
this is a true story. The very next day, I go tell the press at the end of practice that John Elway calls Vance Johnson, Ricky Nutil, Mark Jackson, and three amigos. They go up and ask Mark. Um, they go up and ask John Elway. John, you called Mark and Ricky and Vance the three amigos. John said, "What? Maybe the three midgets? They're all under six feet tall." <laughs> you guys were all kind of undersized. Uh, yeah, we were all up. But the very next day, they put it on the front page. John Elway calls Mark, Vance, and Ricky the three amigos. And that's how they forced us to be friends. And that's when we all became friends, me, Mark, and Ricky. Dude, that's how the amigos started, guys, with a lie. Uh, that's that, that stuck. Uh, no one knows that. They're talking about doing a movie uh, called The Three Amigos, me, Mark, and Ricky. Oh, man. I'd, I'd be all in. By the way, your story, uh, talking to you, is just super compelling. I'm wondering when, when – when, I know you just wrote a book – not too long ago, but man, I think the movie's got to come out at some point too. I mean, there's a there's a lot of layers as we move on in your story. One one football question I want to ask your cat: What was it like to catch a ball from John Elway in the freezing cold at Mile High? You actually asked that question earlier. I apologize for not answering right away. It was so hard to catch a ball from John Elway that I literally sometimes would scream at him and say, "Quit throwing the ball so effing hard, John." And John would say, "I tell you what, Vance, I'll throw it a little softer to you." And that way, instead of you dislocating your fingers like you do almost every time I throw you a pass, they can just knock your neck off of you. And I said, never mind. Throw it hard, John. <laughs> I remember hearing <laughs> one of you guys say it would almost break the webbing in your hand. Oh, oh yes, man. You should see. I, I, my, my ligaments and my fingers are all messed up from catching passes from John Elway for 10 years. What, what an atmosphere that was. I mean, you go to three Super Bowls playing with the Broncos. You go, score 37 touchdowns over the course of your career. But some 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 years are better than others. Uh, when you go in '86, you guys go to the Super Bowl. Uh, but that is the year of the drive. What was that yeah. like? I mean, you guys are—I guess—is we on the two-yard line, right? You're on the road. No, we were on the half-yard line. We had 99 and a half yards to go. And how? What? It, can you just give me a synopsis of what the hell that was like? So John is on the sideline talking to Dan Reeves, and he comes back out to the huddle. And he starts to call the play, and I'm sitting here thinking it's going to be on television, so I'm going to be the one that's going to make all these big catches, and so I'm going to be famous again. And you know what John Elway tells me? Vance, I'm not throwing you one pass, but what you will do is I want you to play in the slot and run down the middle of the field. Everyone's going to be chasing you from linebackers to safeties, and then I'm going to start throwing to different guys, but you'll be the person that's going to be running past everyone, and so everyone's going to think I'm throwing to you. Ready? Break. <laughs> so you can go ahead and watch this, guys. I ran my play, and that was I was not going to get the ball, but I had to pretend like I was going to get it by running fast down the middle of the field. And that's why we kept on going play after play after play down the field. And if anyone wasn't open, John would run for that first down, all the way down to the 10-yard line. And this was the last play because I figured now I'm going to make the winning catch. And so John calls a play, and he puts my amigo Mark Jackson on the same side of the field with me, and I break in the middle of the field, but the linebacker, the safety, and the cornerback cover me. And Mark Jackson scores a winning touchdown for the Denver Broncos, and that's how we won the drive. What was – how quiet was it in that stadium on the road at Cleveland when you guys win that game? Well, it wasn't quiet during the game because they were screaming and yelling at us because they hated the Denver Broncos. But it was very quiet on that – those that 99 and a half yards to go, and that's the reason why we were able to get the plays called and get all the way down the field. And it was very quiet when we made that winning touchdown. They were pissed off. People were screaming and yelling at us after the game. Well, probably the most historic drive in NFL and football history. You're a part of that. You go to the Super Bowl. You play the Giants in Pasadena. You have a big game, Vance. You have, I think, five catches. You get a touchdown over 100 yards. 
Are you are you riding high after that Super Bowl, even though you you lose? Uh, do you party after that? What happens? That's interesting. You, you said that. And by the way, to your listeners, we have not had this conversation, and what I'm about to share with you is going to be the first time that I've talked about this in a lot of years. After that game, even though we lost, and even though I had five catches and I think over 120, 30 yards, when I got back home to Denver, Colorado, you know, I was in my closet trying to commit suicide. Why? Because I didn't love myself anymore. And I got drunk and I was high and I was in my closet and I was thinking, I went to the Super Bowl. I thought I would feel happy and great now. Instead, I just got in my closet and I was trying to cut my wrist and my mother ended up calling me and said, the Lord put you on my heart, man. And I just want to give you a call. I said, mom, you just saved my life because I was literally cutting my wrist and it was bleeding in, in my, in my bedroom and you I would have bled to death. Stop cutting myself. You know, it's, and it's funny. I sit here and I ask you why, but I mean, that's almost an ignorant question because you've told me about your whole background growing up, and that's why. Because I, as I, I'm sitting here as a fan, like, wow, this guy's got it all. But uh, underneath it all, right, is that childhood, is that trauma that you can never outrun. Yes, and you know, and I didn't even realize that during my career that it was the trauma I grew up in around that caused me to be so in much pain during my career. I had three women pregnant at the same time during my career. And how did you handle that? How to handle it? Well, the second wife that I married was pregnant, and the woman I was cheating on her with was pregnant that I met at a strip club, and then the another man's wife that I was cheating with was pregnant. And I met that young man that was born out of that other man's wife for the first time at a Denver Bronco football game. I'm surprised they didn't put this all on video. The guy was holding the kid over top of the fence and screaming and yelling at me, telling me, this is your mother effing kid, Vance Johnson. I looked at him, and that kid looked just like me. But I ended up having to go in the field, and when I came back, I didn't see that kid. I found out years later that he was also being sexually molested by the grandfather. And all this is so heavy. So, of course, there's, there's a lot of drinking and using behind all of it. Your career continues to ascend, though. And then when is the first time you notice your skills eroding because of alcohol and drugs? Well, my skills didn't erode because of alcohol and drugs. My mind made my skills erode because I was so traumatized and maybe the drugs and the alcohol made it worse, but I didn't want to work out as much. And I started to just really feel like if this is how far I wanted to go to be successful and famous and have an identity, I'm very unhappy and I don't want to be here anymore. And you remember what happened with Antonio Brown running off the field during the playoffs? Well, guess what happened to Vance Johnson? I decided not to run back on the field. The Broncos asked me to come back and sign another three-year contract. This is 95, right? Yeah. I just didn't show back up. And what did you do? Started using more. And that's when I started to literally fall asleep in my car. Now, I'd already already been arrested several times for domestic violence. And I ended up being on the front page with the same guy. I told you guys when I was a kid I wanted to be like, O.J. Simpson, that he was being charged for murder of his wife. And Vance Johnson was charged for domestic violence. And I was getting ready to go on the Oprah Winfrey show to apologize to my wife, to 9 million people on television, and my ex-wife, for being so abusive to her during my career. And how did, how did that go when you go, when you go on to Oprah? I mean, every, this is 1996 now. Everybody, everybody watches Oprah. There's not as many channels. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that's – so all the people you tapped into with your sports ability, now you're touching – you know, you're striking emotional chords with people all over the country. How was that experience? No, I'm still a drug addict, alcoholic and still pretty abusive, especially in different ways. But I decided to go on television to apologize because I was so sorry that I was such an abusive man. And surprisingly, Oprah 
when we were talking on stage, she said, Mr. Johnson, your ex-wife actually, I flew her out here. And so do you mind if I bring her here on stage? And I looked at, and I started crying. And I said, please bring her out here. I'm going to apologize to her in front of people. And she walked in the back, and I actually have a recording of this. And apparently, my ex said, no, I don't want to go on stage with him. I hate him. And I'm not going to let him apologize to me because I will not forgive him. That part is on a recording. So she came back out, and I apologized anyway. But I still struggle with addiction even after that. Oof. And then you continue. You know, you mentioned you stopped playing in 95. Uh, you, oh, oh, what's going on between – because we'll pick, we'll pick up the pace a little bit. I know you got to get out of here. When you, from 95 to 2007, or 2007, you go into a coma. Is that right? Yes, guys. I ended up using so much after my career was able to cope with life. I ended up getting in a car accident, and they ended up having to take me to a hospital. And one time I also ended up trying to kill myself by cutting my wrist, and they had to take part of my leg to cover that and induce me into a coma. I ended up ODing after calling my mom and letting her know that I didn't want to live anymore because I found out that my oldest son who came to live with me on the western slope of Colorado, who I didn't want to respond to when he reached out to me, ended up getting killed the very night that he reached out to me. So I tried to literally kill myself and ended up ODing at the hospital doorstep. And they induced me into a 28-day coma. And on day 24, God told my mother, I'm not done with your son yet. Well, let me just, I'm not going to lie. My mother told the doctor that God's not done with him. And on day 28, my eyes opened. And that's when I started to realize that I needed to get some help. But I ended up ODing several times even after that. So I just started screaming and crying out to God one day in this canyon. And then a former Tampa Bay Buccaneer reached out to me. And my seventh ex-wife reached out to the NFL and got me into treatment. And the, so I was a million. Russ Granberry was the guy, right? Um, actually, uh, Randy Grimes. Randy Grimes. Okay, Randy Grimes. Yeah, he's a 10-year Tampa Bay Buccaneer. And so Randy reaches out to you, and then I've heard you say this, and it's so it's fulfilling for me to hear you say this. You know, we have to be broken so we can we can help other people, right? I mean, I'm not putting it exactly how you said it, but like the fact that you are shattered has enabled you to save others. And I've seen you, Vance. I mean, I've seen some of the work you're doing now. I've seen you know just videos of you uh, helping people rehab, and you, you know you do a lot of speaking engagements now. But talk to me a little bit about being broken to help other people. Because people now listen when somebody like you is talking. Well, this is my testimony, guys. And this is where I get really deep. It wasn't until I just cried out to God that I was so broken that I needed help because I didn't want to live anymore. That when I went to treatment, I started getting educated. The other thing I started doing was reading my Bible and just really believing that Jesus came to pay the price to nail all of our sins and addictions to the cross. And that's when I started to promise to God, that for the rest of my life, I just want to go out there and be transparent and offer hope to so many who are struggling with addiction to let them know just because you're some famous person doesn't mean you don't struggle with the same thing that other people, even the homeless people deal with. And so for the rest of my life to this day, all I do is interventions, share the hope in Christ and lead people to treatment. There are many roads to recovery, but mine is the Christ. And that's the reason why I share at different churches and different types of schools and events that I speak at all over the country to let people know that there's a way out of the bondage of that addiction and brokenness that you have to deal with from childhood. Yeah, your Facebook is Vance Inspires, and I love being on there because, you know, whether somebody is completely able to turn it over to God or whether they're struggling with that and they're still trying to find their way, you take Scripture uh, and sometimes you'll insert addiction uh, for words, right, uh, f for, you know, our faults or whatever. And it really, it speaks to me. I think it would speak to a lot of other people if they went to check it out. Oh, absolutely. 
In fact, I'll start with this. Is your pain of your sin, and I add an addiction, greater than the pleasure of your sin, and I add an addiction? And then I say, another sign to stop your addiction. And if you don't mind, I'd like to share a scripture with you that oh, I yeah, share. Actually, yeah, and because I, I really do. I add scripture when, it talk, when I talk about the different things that we go through, and I add in the word addiction. So, for instance, in the book of Romans, Romans 6, 12, it says, let no sin, but I'm going to add an addiction. Let no addiction, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. That's just one scripture that I do. Another uh, one I do here because I had a sex addiction. But sexual immorality and all impurity, I put in quotations, addictions, or covetousness must not even be made named among, I'm sorry, even be named among you as is proper among the saints because I'm a believer now and I call my saint, myself a saint of, of the Lord. And that's the reason why I know that he nailed all the sins and the addictions to the cross so that we could be free from the bondage of all different types of sins and addictions. And free from the bondage of self. Yeah. You know, because that's a, that, that's a big one for us. And, and the way that you carry the word and, 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 and weave that in together with sobriety is so big. A couple, couple more things before I, I let you go. You talk about, now here you are, this, you're this radiant guy. You've got like sunlight coming through you. The sunlight of the spirit comes through you when you speak. In two, like in 2007, I think, or, or towards the end, you talked about, because you're so transparent, like you would drink and you, you couldn't even move, so you would urinate in a cup. And you held the cup next to your bed, and sometimes you would mistake that for a drink in the morning. This is the guy who'd been to three Super Bowls. Yeah, and that's all films actually did a documentary of me, and that's where I was really honest and transparent and was remembering that I would be so drunk that I couldn't even make it to the bathroom. I'd be so high that I end up having to pee in a cup. And that urine in the cup looked like it was just something to drink when I woke up in the morning or in the middle of the night, and I would end up drinking urine. And, 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 and that is a situation where you're constantly going down that road. Did you think to yourself, I'm going to die of this disease or I'm, I'm just going to, I don't care. I wanted to die. I was so suicidal in my mind that I didn't care if I died. And so anything that would happen of me dying, I was willing to accept. Where does someone, watch this, go ahead. Watch this in the proverb. And this is going to encourage people that might have a loved one and or themselves needing help. So the book of Proverbs, it says, the way of a fool, and I put in addict, is the right is right in his own eye. But a wise man listens to advice. Well, guess what? Even when you're an addict, you can actually listen to a wise man's advice. And that's when I say Rand, Randy Grimes, who was a wise person, a former ball player in recovery, and me being a fool in my addiction, I was still open with my ears to hear him say, Vance, you need to get help. And that's when... The NFL said, we know you are a million dollars in debt, but we're willing to pay for you to go to treatment. So the way of a fool, an addict, is right in his own eyes. But a wise man listens to advice. And I listened to the advice even though I was an addict. How did you get your life back together? Because like you said, you're deep in the hole financially, personally. You have six children. Uh, I'm imagining the relationships weren't all great. How did you, you know, move on to that? Like, How did you fix all that? Or try to? How to try to start? That's a really good question. The first thing I did, guys, when I got clean is I went to a church in Colorado there. Pastor Bososa had a large church there, and I ended up talking and sharing my testimony, and I asked people if they knew any of my ex-wives. And half of the church, which there were 3,000 of them in there, said, yes, we know your ex-wives. And I hit my knees and just started crying and said, please tell my ex-wives that I'm sorry, and I repent for my sins against them. It was not their fault. It was all my fault. 
And then I asked if anyone knew my kids and the rest of them raised their hands and knew my children. I said, please apologize to my kids about me abandoning them as children and that I'm never going to be that dad again. And so that's when I start to realize as a believer in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, when you become a new creation, it says, behold, all things are new. The old has passed away. And that's when I started just saying the old me I have died to, the new me is going to go offer hope to all those who need to die to their old ways and their addictions. And now coming up on nine years, but I'm in my eight years of recovery, I've actually reunited even with my own biological kids, apologizing to them and then watching me in my recovery, knowing that dad meant it. And so now they've accepted my apology after years of not even trusting that I was going to stay clean long enough. But I've reunited even with my own junior aunt Johnson here in, in Arizona that I haven't seen since he was in his mom's womb. I mean, that's unbelievable. And, and, you know, you're able to do, you're able to do it because you had that clean slate to work with. I remember I went to a place called Karen and Father Bill, who's passed away, would speak to us. And I remember him just saying the words clean slate, Vance. And I remember thinking like, this is, if, if I, if I turn myself over and if I work this, I will have that clean slate. And I did. And because, because I, I, I stayed sober and I did my best to do the next right thing. I mean, I still fall short. But I, I was was trying finally, you know. I, yeah. I, I I was willing finally. I was never willing before. Right. Absolutely. And like you said, we still fall short, but we are on our way to victory. And that's biblical too, because the apostle Paul said, Not that I have attained all of this, but I press on to that which he's called me to. And so that's exactly what you're doing and I'm doing, brother. We don't have not attained it all, but we keep pressing on so that we can keep being used to offer hope to others. What do you tell people that or the person that just has one day and they don't know how to keep it? They don't know how to stay sober. Cause I see all the people you work with and I see how they respond to you. What do you tell them? Well, many people, whether it's one day or five days or a week or a month and end up relapsing, falling off again, there's a way and they're going to use that testimony to offer hope to others who have relapsed. And so I tell them, don't judge yourself, but no, just like an athlete, it takes more than just one push-up to make you victorious. If you just do one push-up, you're not going to get muscles. If you do 10 push-ups, if you do 100 push-ups a day, then guess what? You can't stop. It's the same way in your recovery. You cannot stop. Every single day, you got to work out. Yo, Vance, I appreciate the time so much. Now, America's Rehab Campuses, that's where you are now, one of the many things you do, but you are the ambassador for them. You're out in Tucson. And then vanceinspires.org is the website. In fact, if people want to reach out to me, go to vanceinspires.org, and they're welcome to reach out to me via that. And guess what? They can call me at 888. My football number was 82, so I'm going to start again. 888 vance 888-82-VANCE. They can call me personally. Hey, you're a special guy, Vance. I really can't thank you enough for the time. For me personally, growing up watching you and – you know, being enamored by you, uh, you know, the outside and all the sizzle, you know, now I get to be enamored by both the inside and the outside. And it's great stuff, man. I appreciate you. God bless you, brother. Let's keep doing this together. Promise we made God. Let's use our testimony to offer hope. I appreciate you so much, man, because you're, you're God's vessel. And that's the reason why he had me on your show. Thanks, Vance. Okay, bro. Bye-bye. Thanks so much for listening to The Payoff with Pete. Once again, I'm Pete Souza, And of course, we are part of the Rogue Media Network. All kinds of good podcasts you can find at roguemedianetwork.com. And of course, you can find this podcast and all those other ones wherever you get your podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, other spots like that. 
This has been a Rogue Media Podcast. 